Turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the book of Hebrews. This morning we will begin our verse-by-verse trek through this letter. Last week Sam gave us an introduction uh, to the book as, as a whole and its call for endurance. And this morning we will begin studying it in in detail. There are obviously many books and many resources on the book of Hebrews, and most of the best books were written by people who had spent a long time studying and and meditating upon the book before they wrote. And so they approached their writing with a sense of excitement, ready to share all that they had learn from their long study. I must tell you that that's not the position from which I begin this series. I've read through the the letter to the Hebrews a number of times in my life on different treks through the Bible, and I have read through it about a dozen times since I decided to preach it last fall. But I've never before studied the book in depth. I've never before taught through it. And, and therefore, this is somewhat of a new experience for me, as I will be learning with you as we go. I, I doubt I'll ever be more than a week or two ahead of you, sharing with you each week what the Holy Spirit is, is sharing with me. And as a preacher, that's both exciting and scary at the same time. It's, it's exciting because you're studying something new, and you're, and you're diving into a new portion of, of God's Word, but it's also scary because you're not 100% sure where you're going. I trust that the Holy Spirit will lead us where He wants us to go. As I think about that, and I think about why is it that I've never studied this book before? Why is it that I've never gone into any depth in the book of of Hebrews? And as I reflect on that question, I have to admit that, that the reason that I've never studied this book before is because I've always found it a bit strange. Scott was talking about that in Sunday school this morning. He's teaching through the book of Revelation. It's another book that we sometimes avoid because it is strange. Hebrews is like that for me. It has its verses, of course. It has those those verses that we put on coffee cups and and T-shirts. But but the letter as a whole has always bewildered me. It's, It's always left me more confused than encouraged. Something about the way I'm wired that resonates with Paul's letters. Hebrews, not so much. So I was encouraged to discover that Charles Spurgeon had a very similar initial reaction to the book of Hebrews. Looking back at his younger self, Spurgeon writes this. He says, I have a very lively, or rather deadly, recollection of a certain series of discourses on the Hebrews which made a deep impression on my mind of the most undesirable kind. I wished frequently that the Hebrews had kept the epistle to themselves. (laughs) For it sadly bore this poor Gentile All the talk of angels and Moses and Melchizedek and sacrifices left the young Spurgeon cold. He didn't think that this strange letter had much of value to offer to a Gentile lad living in England. 
I suspect some of you may be thinking the same thing this morning. There's probably a few of you here who are really excited that we're studying the book of Hebrews. You, you've wanted to study it for a long time, but I suspect there are at least a few of you who are wondering what value such a strange letter really has to offer. And if that's where you are this morning, if you've never before studied this letter, or if you have studied it and found it bewildering, I want to remind you of what we heard last Sunday, because it's, it's going to be a theme that we return to again and again and again. The point of this letter is not the strange images, but rather the point of this letter is the call to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for he is the one who can strengthen us to run with endurance the race that has been marked out for us. This letter points us to Christ. And if we can let it do that, if we can, can hear as it, as it reminds us of who He is, then we can be certain that this letter has much to offer a crowd of Gentiles like us. And so with that expectation, let's turn our attention to the first few verses of this letter. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is the very word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here. <coughs> Father God, we come before you this morning humbly asking that your Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That it would give us a heart to love and, and that it would give us a mind to comprehend the glory of Christ as it is revealed to us in this letter. Father God, may you use your truth to sanctify us and to equip us for the service of your kingdom and the good of your people, for the glory of your name. <coughs> we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We refer to this book as a letter, but you'll notice that it doesn't begin like any of the other letters that we have in the New Testament. It will end that way. It will, it will end with, with greetings, and it will end with what the things that we expect to come at the end of the letter. But here at the very beginning, the, the author doesn't bother to introduce himself. He doesn't bother to, to introduce those to whom he is writing. He doesn't offer any sort of greeting, but he rather just launches into his theme. And it is those first words that, that will be 
our focus this morning. In fact, these words are so weighty that it's actually going to take us two Sundays to get through them. Our focus this morning is really just going to be on the first verse and a half, where he tells us, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Those words set before us a profound contrast, a, a contrast between God's former way of speaking and his present way of speaking. Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but now, in the present, he, he has spoken to us through his Son. Now, before we consider that contrast, I want us first to notice the continuity. Both long ago and in these present days, we see that God speaks. We're so used to holding the Word of God in our hands, and, and we're so used to hearing it read and, and preached and, and sung and prayed each Sunday that we may not appreciate the full significance of, of that seemingly simple statement. God is there, and He is not silent. God is there, and He speaks. Now, obviously, God is revealed in the things that He has made. Paul teaches us this in, in Romans chapter 1. What can be known about God, Paul says, is, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The creation reveals God. The, the creation shows us something of His power and of His, his nature. But the creation can show us only so much. It shows us enough to leave us without excuse. Paul makes that clear. But it doesn't show us everything. This week, as I was showing my kids back and forth between practices, I, I heard a story on NPR. I not only heard part of the story, but, but I heard enough of it to, to pique my interest. They were, they were talking about the teeth of some medieval lady. Maybe you've heard this story, too. Because as they were examining the teeth, and I think the researcher was actually looking into the, the history of dental hygiene or something like that, but, but, but as they were examining the teeth of this, this skull, they found something interesting. They, they found these blue specks embedded in her teeth. And immediately, the, the, question, the, the researchers had questions because that sort of blue pigment was really, really expensive in the 12th century. So why was it there? How did it get there, of course, what do the researchers do? Well, they come up with a story. They come up with a story that could explain this, this thing that they have found. And, and back then, they were so confident in the story that they had constructed that they said it totally rewrote what we knew about the history of monks and the creation of sacred texts in the 12th century. Because now, all of a sudden, they knew that here was a woman who had been involved in the creation of sacred texts, what they had previously thought was an almost exclusively male job in that period of history. That was their story. That was the, the narrative that they constructed. But wouldn't it have been so much better if they could actually talk to that woman 
If they could actually sit her down and, and ask her questions. If they could hear her tell her story in their own <coughs> words. Her story is plausible. It, it seems to, to make sense. But there's always going to be that doubt. Because we're not sure. We know from, from experience that when we look at evidence, we can construct the wrong narrative. We can come to the wrong conclusions. How much better is it when someone can tell us their own story? It's the same with the knowledge of God. In creation, we have evidence. We have facts to, to deal with. We see something of his power. We see something of his nature, but there is no way that we're going to get the story of redemption, the story of God's love for rebellious people, the story of him sending his son as the propitiation for our sins. There's no way we're going to get that story from creation alone. And that's why it is such good news to know that the God we serve is a God who speaks. It is a God who, who tells us who he is. It's a God who graciously tells us what's wrong with us. And it's a God who graciously points us to his son as the one who has come to make all things new. Because he has spoken, we don't have to guess. We don't have to guess who he is. We don't have to, to guess how he thinks of us. We, we don't have to guess how we might relate to him. We don't have to guess what he requires of us if, if we would be reconciled to him. We know he is there and we know who he is because he has spoken. There are those today who think that religion is simply man's attempt to, to get to God. They use the image of, of, of various men taking various paths up a mountain, all ascending to the same point. If that's the way that you think about religion, then all religions are equally valid or invalid, as the case may be. But that is not true of our faith. That is not true of the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. As Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, this is not a gospel that man made up. Contrary to Freud, this is not our projection of our wishful thinking upon a cosmic creator. But rather, this is the revelation we have received from his very own mouth. God speaks. We aren't guessing. And this has profound implications for our lives still today. That God speaks means that we must receive his words. Yes, we will sometimes be confused. There are confusing images in this book. We will not always understand. But even when our understanding is, is less than perfect, even when our confusion maybe outweighs our knowledge, even then, we must receive his words. Because they are his words. And we would have a relationship with him. 
Abby's in the process of, of applying to a number of different colleges. And each college has its own requirements for what an applicant must do. And each college speaks. It publishes those requirements. <coughs> so Abby isn't free to, to make up how she will apply to a school. She, she must follow the guidelines that have been set before. The, the college has spoken. The university has, has spoken. And Abby, if she would be considered as a student, must receive those words. It's a position that we find ourselves in with respect to God. He has spoken. We must receive his words. That's what we will be doing in our study of this book. We are devoting ourselves to God's revelation of himself, that we might know him, not as we hope he is or as we would like him to be, but we, that we might know him as he is, as he has revealed himself in his word. But there's more going on than just this. It's not only that our knowledge of God is dependent on Beyond his words. It's not only that, that, that God reveals his, his standards of admission, so to speak. But I want to suggest to you that God's speaking also reveals to us his love. God speaking reveals to us his desire for relationship. Why do schools publish their admission standards? Because they want people to apply. They, they want people to, to come. Why has God spoken? Why did he not just wipe his hands and, and walk away from creation who rebelled against him? He has spoken because he loves. He has spoken because he desires relationship with his people. That God has spoken means he wants to be known. After Adam's sin, God came to the garden. After the Tower of Babel, God called Abraham to himself. God speaks to invite us to himself. He speaks that he might be found. And that means that if, that if we will devote ourselves to, to the study of these words, if, if we will listen carefully, asking the Holy Spirit to, to open our ears, then we can be confident that we will see Jesus. That this study will be fruitful. Not, not because I'm so good at explaining, not because you're so smart to perceive, but because the Holy Spirit will work. To accomplish that which God wants accomplished. To accomplish that which, which Jesus came to secure. The relationship between God and his people that he has ordained even before the foundations of the world. And so yes, this is or can be a difficult, confusing book. But the fact that it's a book the fact that, that God has spoken tells us that, that he will do what is necessary to help us understand if we will come before him humbly. 
asking for his help, asking him to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love, minds to understand. That is a prayer he will not fail to answer. So let us begin this study with confidence. Let us, let us begin confident that the God who is speaking is speaking to us because he wants to be known. And with that understanding in place, let us also notice that there is a, a contrast here. Yes, God is a God who is speaking, but he is a God who, who has spoken differently at different times, long ago. He spoke at many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Notice that, that each side of that contrast tells us when, to whom, and how God speaks. And I want us to, to briefly consider each of these this, this morning. First, consider when God speaks. The contrast here is between long ago and in these last days. First, God spoke long ago. The author uh, is writing sometime in the first century, probably before 70 A.D. The last Old Testament prophet before John the Baptist arrived on the scene was in the 400s. The first writing prophet of the Old Testament was in the 1400s. Writing about things that, that happened even thousands of years before that. It's, it's not hard to understand why the, the author says that, that God spoke long ago. Just think for a moment, 400 years ago was 1619. That's ancient history. 1400 years ago was 619. That's, that's almost inconceivable. And that's just scratching the surface. It's not hard to understand why he says long ago, but, but I don't think it's just that he wants us to know that a lot of time has passed. He wants us to see that God has been speaking for a long time. God's speaking is not a new thing. God has been speaking from the very beginning. And that matters. It matters because what's new is suspect. I know we don't think that way today. We, we are what Lewis called chronological snobs. We, we assume that, that what is new is better. What is current and, and contemporary must be the best, must be new and improved. But such thinking has been proven foolish again and again and again and again. When I was a kid, I used to wonder why all the songs on the oldie stations were good, when only about a tenth of the songs on the new stations were, were good. Well, there's a reason for that. It's not because there weren't bad songs in previous generations. It's because they got weeded out. No one kept playing them. The only songs they keep playing are the good ones. We have to endure all the bad ones when you listen to contemporary music. <laughs> and so it is with, with all area of human culture. There's a reason we do things the way we do them. Yes, there, there can be problems with tradition. Yes, there are times when things need to change. But, but, but it is, there's a reason that certain things have endured. New is not always 
better. But, it, but it's not just that, that, that new things are unproven. It's not just that new things have unintended consequences. If the creator God, the God who was there in the beginning, the God who was there was before the beginning, if he is a God who speaks, then it seems unlikely that he would start speaking today. If he's been there from the beginning, and he's a speaking God, then wouldn't he be a God who has been speaking from the beginning? This is why the New Testament writers were always so anxious to, to, to make it clear that they were not starting a new religion. Think about Paul. He says, listen, I am declaring to you the gospel of God concerning his son that was foretold beforehand. And even when he says that something new has been made known, he says, but it was told to you in the law of this is not something new, but rather it's the fulfillment of something very, very old. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to see. The God who spoke long ago is the same God who is speaking in these last days. Well, that's a phrase that requires some explanation. What does he mean by in these last days? Some point to this phrase as a, as a clear sign of error. See, the Bible makes mistakes. The author of Hebrews thought that he was living in the last days, and clearly he was wrong. After all, he was writing some 2,000 years ago. doesn't seem like his days were the last days, if the end still hasn't come 2,000 years later. But this assumption misunderstands the biblical language. Think about it. Jesus himself made it clear that his return would be long in coming. Jesus himself told parables that, that said there would be a long delay. And yet he also used this language of last days. So Jesus knew both that it would be a long time and that we were living in the last days. You know this from experience. 
But think about it this way. Imagine that you lived in a, a town or, or a village that had been decimated by war. And your king promised that someone would come to rebuild the village. Someone would come to make all things new. And so you wait. You wait for the master builder to come. That is the age of promise. We look forward to, to what the king has said he will do. But when the master builder comes, when he arrives with his wagons full of supplies and, and tools, we know fulfillment has come. Obviously, there's work to do. There's a lot of building that still needs to happen. But when the master builder comes, the last days have dawned. That's the age in which we live. That's where we find ourselves today, this, this period of already and not yet. Already the end has begun. Already the fulfillment has come. But it's not yet complete. We don't yet see it in full. The author of Hebrews will, will make this very point. We live in this age, these last days, when God is beginning to fulfill in Christ all that he promised he would do. And again, think about what that means for our endurance. Think about what that means for living in this present evil age. It means that we will groan. Things are not yet new. All things have not been recreated, rebuilt. We groan as we wait for the builder to finish his work, as we wait for the fullness of all that has been promised. We long for that day when sickness will be no more, when our bodies will no longer rebel, when our relationships will no longer be torn by the sins of others and even our own sins, if we're honest. We long for that day when we will not have this inner war going on between what we want to do and what we constantly find ourselves doing. We long for that day when we will be presented to our King holy and blameless and above reproach, when we will be made perfect in the enjoying of Him forever. We long for that day. And we groan as we wait because it hurts to live here now. It hurts to live in this present evil age. But how foolish would it be to give up on the builder or to long for the day before his arrival because he hasn't yet finished the work that he is doing. And yet, when we lose hope in Christ, that's exactly what we are doing. When we seek life and security elsewhere, that's exactly what we are doing. We are giving up on the fulfillment that has come. And we are returning to the old ways. The author of Hebrews wants us to know there is no life there. The old ways point us to Christ. It is only in Him that we will find life. Therefore, let us cling to Him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who will hold us. He is the one who will bring us to the end. He is the one who ultimately will give us all that has been promised. Not only is there a contrast between when God spoke, there's also a contrast here between to whom God speaks. I need to go more quickly here, but just notice the difference. 
He says, long ago God spoke to our fathers, but now he has spoken to us. And again, I, I think our modern ears have a hard time hearing what's, what's going on here. Because we think, oh, he spoke to other people, not us. But now we have a personal convinced that's not the way that a first century Jew would have, would have read those words. For them to, to hear the author say he spoke to our fathers would have been intensely personal. There was a, a connection with previous generations that, that we just don't get in that day. And so the point is not, well, he used to speak to other people, but now he's spoken to you. This is your personal word. You don't need to worry about what he said to them. Hold on to what he said to you. Not at all. But rather, he, he is speaking to people who are doing what? He is speaking to people who want to go back exclusively to the words that were spoken to the fathers. He says, listen, you know that he spoke to your fathers. The point is not that, that that has no value. The point is that the same God who spoke to them has now spoken to you. He has now spoken to us. And so if you would not dream of disregarding the words that he gave to your fathers, if you would not dream of simply casting those aside, how dare you set aside the words that he has spoken to you? If those words are valuable, so too are the words that have been spoken to you. He's not saying those words are, are insignificant. Focus on the new. He's saying, listen, you know the value of what he spoke to your father. And it's the same God who spoke to them who has now spoken to you. But it's not just equal, but rather the word that he has spoken to you is actually greater. We see this in the last contrast, the, the contrast of, of how. Notice again what he says. He says, long ago he spoke to our fathers. How? By the prophets. At many times and in many ways, but now. How has he spoken? He's spoken by the Son. Again, to, to say that previously he spoke through the prophets is in, in no way to, to disparage the word, is in no way to despise what was given. The, the prophets were honored men and women, chosen people who, who spoke the very words of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We honor the, the words that were given to us by those prophets as the very words of God because that is what they are. They are words of, of great value. But as great as the prophets were in these last days, God has done something better. As great as the prophets were in these last days, God has spoken by His Son. The heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who, who sustains the universe by the word of his power, the, the one who made purification for our sins. Those descriptors will be our, our focus next Sunday as we, as we think about who this son is, but for now, simply notice that previously God spoke through prophets, but now he has spoken through his son. And the implication is clear. Not only must we value the word that has come through the son as equal to that of the prophet, but we must regard it as greater. We must regard it as even more precious. We must regard it as even more indispensable. And we see why in that little phrase, in many ways and in many times. 
Notice there's, there's no parallel to that in the description of the Son. The, the, the revelation of the Son, the, the Word through the Son is singular. It is once for all time. The words through the prophets were in many ways and, and in many times. And throughout the book of Hebrews, that which is varied and that which is repeated is that which is incomplete. Not that which is worthless, but that which is incomplete. The word through the Son brings to completion all the words spoken beforehand. Without the word of the Son, you have a play without a final act. A story with, with no conclusion, with no resolution. You have the, the season finale right before the series gets canceled. That's the Old Testament without the new. That's the words of the prophets without the word of the Son. It's, it's what Jesus told to the religious leaders of his day. He said, listen, you study the scriptures. You, you study the words of the prophets. Why? Because you think that you have life by them. But do you not know that those words point to me? That if you miss me, you miss the point of everything that God has been saying up to this point. We come to the book of Hebrews not to, to learn a few principles about how we might live better lives. We, we come not to, to, to find the key to, to power, to overcome the obstacles that, that stand in our way. We come to the book of Hebrews to see Jesus. We come to the book of Hebrews to hear His voice. We come to the book of Hebrews to hear how the story all comes together. How all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. Because God has spoken through His Son. He has the words of life. And as the disciples said, where else can we go? If you walk away from Christ, you walk away from God's story. You walk away from God's promises. You walk away from all that he has for his people. Because all the treasures of God are hidden in him. If you would be heir to those treasures, you must come to him. And that is where this book is going to lead us. It's going to lead us to him. So let us pray earnestly that the Spirit would allow this book to accomplish that purpose in our lives over the course of however many sermons it takes <laughs> to get through the book of Hebrews. So let us pray for that. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you that you have spoken. And we thank you that you have spoken your final and best word through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lead us to him we pray, that in Him we might find life, that in Him we might find hope, that in Him we might know You and live to the praise of Your glory all our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.